Well, last time we were together, we were literary witnesses to the end of an era. Because in Genesis 25, verses 1 through 6, we were told about the last 35 years of Abraham's life, including his marriage to Keturah and six more sons. Then in verses 7 through 11, we were told about his death and burial alongside Sarah in the cave that he bought. We saw that God blessed Isaac. And then in verses 12 to 18, there was a recounting of the descendants of Ishmael. So God kept his promise to Abraham by making descendants of of, of nations of Ishmael. We pick up then where we left off with the rest of chapter 25. And we'll look at it in two parts. First, the birth of two nations from verse 19 to verse 26. And second, we're going to see the younger, stronger than the older in verses 27 to 34. So let's start Let's start by reading down to verse 26. Beginning in verse 19, we read this. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. So we see first the birth of two nations. And it begins with another one of those, now these are the generations of the records of statements. And we just saw one of those back in in verse 12 with Ishmael. But really this one is signaling the end of a section that began at the end of chapter 11. We're talking about, now these are the records of the generations of the sons of you know, the Terah, Abram, Nahor, Haran. And of course, Abram or Abraham was the focus of that. But his death has brought the end of an era. And so now this new section is going to focus on Isaac. And what we find out about him first is that he was 40 years old when he met and married Rebekah. Now, we talked about that uh, already in our studies of Genesis. But note that Rebekah's background is mentioned again. There's her father, Bethuel the Aramean, and by the way, Aramean, uh, that's equivalent to Syrian. Aram means Syria in the Old Testament. He is the uh, Aramean of Paddan Aram, it says, and Rebekah was also the sister of Laban the Aramean. And this is information we already had, all of it, back to chapter 24, but now it is brought back up and reiterated Because just as Abraham sent his servant there to bring back a wife for Isaac from his own family, this is foreshadowing that something kind of sort of similar is going to happen with a descendant of Isaac. But so far, 
Isaac and Rebekah had no descendants. In fact, if we skip down to verse 26, 20 years went by with no descendants. Um, I don't know what that's like. My first child came nine months and four days after I was married. But uh, Isaac and Rebekah, 20 years go by. So verse 21, Isaac prayed. He prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. Like her mother-in-law, Sarah, Rebecca's womb was closed. Now, why that was is a matter of some conjecture. Um, one commentary suggests that with Isaac knowing he was the one inheriting the covenant promise from his father, Abraham, perhaps he began to take it for granted. That seems hard to imagine, though, because the passage we're looking at actually takes place before Abraham died. I know that you know Genesis 25 recounts Abraham's death. We've already seen that earlier in this chapter. But this passage occurs before that. Because Abraham lived to 175 years old. He would have been 140 when Isaac married. And then 160 before Isaac had a descendant. So whatever is the cause of delaying having children... Why Rebecca's womb is closed, why she's barren. This is what we do know. God was in control. God was in control and yet he desires his children. He desires his people to come to him in prayer. This is this thing with Isaac praying. This is another biblical example of the paradoxical compatibility between the absolute sovereignty of God and the need for his people to faithfully obey him. It's why we have verses like Hebrews 4.16 that say, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's why we have verses like Philippians 4 verses 6 and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The sovereign Lord of the universe, who created everything and controls everything and ordains everything, decrees everything, He still desires those who are made in His image to pray, to come to Him with our needs, with our requests. He wants that. And so Isaac prayed. And just like we read in Ephesians 3.20, how God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what you can ask or think. God doesn't give Isaac one child, he gives him twin sons. And I suppose you could insert a joke here about, was that really a blessing? Well, of course it was a blessing. Psalm 127.3, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Children are always a blessing because life, beloved, is a gift from God. And when we don't view children as such, as our culture so often doesn't, by the way, that means the problem is not with the children, it's with us. The fact of the matter is, Isaac and Rebecca longed for a child, and specifically a son, much the same way Isaac's parents had, by the way. And God blessed them, by the way, by not making them wait quite as long as Abraham had to wait. The Lord answered Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But, big but here, the children struggled 
together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. They, beloved, they had to be thrilled they were having children. But that happiness turned to confusion because something wasn't right. It wasn't just that the two lives in her womb were kicking. They were struggling together within her. That is, they were struggling with one another within her. And neither she nor her nurses nor her husband, no one's able to give her answers, and so she does the only thing she can. She goes to God. Isaac had interceded on behalf of his wife, and now Rebecca goes to the Lord with her problem. And however God communicated with her, we're not told, whether it was a dream or a vision or a flat-out voice from heaven, he spoke to her. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So just as the twins would be completely different and antagonistic toward one another, the nations which would come from them would be also. So then who would win? Well, God is very specific about that here. One people would be stronger than the other, and it would be the younger. The older would serve the younger. You know, in most cases, it's the firstborn who receives the honor. It's the firstborn that gets the double portion of the inheritance and whatnot. But this would be different. This would be like, you know, Abel being the one favored by God, not Cain. And actually, if you look at the line of the Messiah, if you look at the line of Christ, going all the way back to Adam, it's worth noting there are at least five in the line of Christ, who weren't firstborn sons. You have Seth, who God gave to Adam and Eve after Abel was killed. Then here's Isaac and his son Jacob. Jacob's son Judah. Judah was a fourthborn of the sons. And then David, who had seven older brothers, right? And, and that's to say nothing, by the way, of the parts of the genealogy where we don't know if someone was a firstborn son or a secondborn son or, for that matter, a tenthborn son. And ultimately what this shows is God's sovereign election, his choice of nations, and yes, his choice of individuals before they are born. You know, Paul in Romans 9 makes reference to Jacob and Esau. He says, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. By the way, that last, just as it is written, that's from Malachi 1 verse 3, by the way. So God chose, he chose the younger. He chose Jacob for his own reasons. And Rebekah, no doubt, you know, shared this with Isaac, and it was probably told to Jacob, if not Jacob and Esau. And uh, they had to grow up knowing this. First, though, they had to be born, right? So the time comes, and the first came forth red, red red and hairy. Esau means hairy. And his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel so that his name was called Jacob, which means hill catcher. And as I read it put, 
though to the natural eye Esau appeared the stronger and more attractive, Jacob was tenaciously following on his heels and would one day overtake and replace him, not only in the eyes of God, but even in the world of men. So here two nations are born. Let's read the rest then, where the younger is stronger than the older. Verse 27, let's read down through verse 34. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I am about to die, so what of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave him Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, this is a passage that has been greatly misunderstood by many, as at least as I understand it, because many who have preached this text or written on it or even just read it, you know, we sometimes come across thinking Jacob is the villain here and Esau is the wronged older brother. If you have that misconception, I want to put that to bed right now uh, because we begin to see their personalities in verse 27. Esau becomes a skillful hunter, we're told, and Jacob is a peaceful man living in tents. And the way that's rendered in the New American Standard makes Esau seem like kind of a man's man. And and Jacob, meanwhile, is one who maybe doesn't like getting his hands dirty, a, a man who enjoys being comfortable. So in that respect, Esau comes across as, you know, kind of more respectable, and Jacob is a little off-putting. But that's not exactly a great understanding of the Hebrew here. And uh, let's deal with Esau first. He was a skillful hunter. So what? What about that makes Esau commendable? Because we're told nothing about the family being in danger from wild animals. Um, and actually the word, word skillful could also be rendered, rendered cunning. Um, indicates you know, he was cunning to find these beasts, this game we read of in the next verse that Isaac loved, this, this taste for game Isaac loved in Esau. But the only other hunter mentioned in the Bible is a man by the name of Nimrod. And we've seen him in Genesis already. Genesis 10, 9. Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord, or rather, against the Lord. So, one hunter in the Bible was against the Lord, Nimrod. And the other here, Esau, is totally unconcerned with God. The point is, Esau preferred being out in the field, doing what he wanted to do, rather than being home working with his family and serving the Lord. And I believe that's one reason Hebrews twelve sixteen describes Esau as an immoral man. And the word there for immoral, the KJV actually writes it, fornicator. He was, it's the Greek word uh, pornos, a word from which we get pornography, of course. And it means someone who is sexually immoral, a prostitute chaser. 
So Esau is not the wronged older brother here. Esau is not a good guy. On the other hand, Jacob, we are told, was a peaceful man. But that that really isn't a fair description of Jacob there. Um, Other translations say things like plain or, or quiet. But the word in Hebrew there, Tom, means perfect or complete or mature. And actually it's the same word used when God described Jacob, to, uh, not Jacob, when God described Job to Satan, Job 1 verse 8, a perfect or blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. Jacob, beloved, we tend to have this thought of him as a bad guy early in his life and make no mistake about it, he's going to make some mistakes and we're going to, you know, we're going to see one here. But Genesis is describing him here not in a in bad guy terms, but as a man of faith. He's a man of faith here. A man concerned for God. A man who knew that God had blessed his grandfather, and God had blessed his father, and God would bless him as well. And he believed in that God. But there was trouble, because Isaac loved Esau, and he had a taste for game. Isaac, you know, Isaac probably didn't approve of a lot of choices Esau made in his life, but like sometimes fathers share interest with some sons more than others, Esau held a special place in Isaac's heart because of that shared bond. The text actually says he loved Esau because he had a taste for game. So there's there's that. But Rebekah loves Jacob. Why? Because Rebekah has been attracted to Isaac because of her desire to follow the will of God. That's why she came from her home, and now Jacob trusts in God, and so he holds a special place to her. Rebecca loves Jacob. Well, Rebecca and Jacob know that God has said what? That Jacob is to inherit the blessing. The the younger will be served by the older. The younger is stronger than the older. So Esau uh, because of Isaac's partiality to Esau, it could be that, that Rebekah and Jacob feared Isaac would try to bless him in spite of what God said. And this was a problem not just because God had already said it's Jacob, not Esau, but because of Esau's poor moral character. Uh, more Poor moral character, by the way, that we're going to see more of later on. But Jacob uh, is seems concerned for God Esau appears to be disinterested in faithfully obeying God. For that matter, Esau also seems disinterested in the blessing, in the inheritance itself, at least the spiritual part of it. You know, he probably wouldn't have minded a double portion of the estate. But Jacob is supposed to get the blessing. Jacob is the descendant through whom the covenant made with Abraham is going to continue. Jacob knew the blessing was supposed to go to him, but Isaac is delaying. He hasn't given it yet. So one day Esau comes in from one of his trips, uh, no doubt a hunting expedition, uh, makes a very big deal out of being famished, and Jacob just so happens to be cooking this stew. Esau begs him for the food. You know, Esau could have made himself something in a matter of minutes, but he doesn't, and the sense in the text is that he comes on very strongly. So Jacob He's disgusted. He has to be disgusted with Esau's immorality, disgusted perhaps also with his irresponsibility. And so here is where Jacob makes a proposition. And he may have been joking when he made this. He he may have not even seriously thought that Esau would say yes to it. Sell the birthright 
and I'll give you a pot of stew. And to his amazement, probably, Esau agrees to it. You know, Esau's like, I'm going to die one day. The birthright didn't mean anything to me. And my father Isaac isn't going to die for a long time anyway. He's probably going to bless Jacob anyway, so he does it. And they, they make an oath, they swear an oath, and the birthright is now Jacob's for whatever it's worth. Esau eats the bread and the stew and rises and goes on his way. And the last verse there, thus Esau despised his birthright. And by the way, the despising of the birthright doesn't come later. The despising of the birthright comes in how Esau treated it in the first place. So why do people perceive Jacob as the bad guy here? Because it is worth noting in Scripture, there's not one time Jacob is condemned or even criticized for what happened here. But Esau is unequivocally castigated. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Not just in that moment, but it was the summation of his life's attitude. Esau grew up knowing Jacob was the son of promise. And rather than rest in the Lord and trust in Him and live his life to please God regardless, he was either insanely jealous or just didn't care, neither of which is a godly attitude. So we got the sexually immoral prostitute chaser as careless about his faith as he is other parts of his life. And this incident would have a far-reaching impact on his life. The people who would come from him would later be known as the nation of Edom, Edomites. Esau's often called Edom, which means red, and it's thought that, you know, it, it comes from the red lentils here. Now Jacob, he would he, he he should have rather, he should have been patient. He should have been willing to let God work all of this out. That's true. He should have trusted that God uh what God had told his mother that 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 it would come to pass. He should have been patient. Jacob's sin here then isn't greed or, or, or anything like that. It's a lack of faith. It's a faithlessness. It's, it's, it's what we'll see in his father and what, what we have seen in his grandfather Abraham, bouts of faithlessness. He wanted God's purposes to come to pass, but he wanted it so much he wanted it too much. By which I mean he felt he had to help God along. And Isn't that what we do sometimes? Isn't that what churches do sometimes? I feel we see a whole lot of this today. Uh, we we see it. We want to reach people. But the simple preaching of the gospel doesn't seem to be doing it. So we feel like we have to help that along. And so the word of God is no longer sufficient. We have to, to, to have, you know, smoke and lights and a certain type of music and whatever else, whatever your preference is. But we don't need stew to reach people. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need to look cool. We just need the Word of God. We need to obey it. We need to proclaim it. We need to trust that which God has said. And that's where Jacob fails here. Um, And the result would be an estranged relationship with both his brother and his father. And it, it eventually will result in more deception and him fleeing to Paddan Aram. But we'll see that later. The point, beloved, here is that uh, we've got to remain steadfast in our faith. 
in our belief in God and living out that faith and trusting in His promises because if if we fail in our faith, that will wreak havoc and it will have consequences. So may our faith not fail. May our words and our thoughts and our conduct not reflect the carelessness of Esau nor the impatience of Jacob, but instead may we rest in the promises of God, promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, we'll see to Jacob, and ultimately fulfilled through their descendant, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making promises. Thank you for keeping promises. And most of all, we thank you that because of your faithfulness in the past, we can have confidence in your faithfulness in the present and for the future. So in the light of that, Father, first help us have faith, uh, an unwavering trust in you, and beyond that, Father, help us to live out that trust in the world, that you and your Son Jesus might receive all the glory. Amen.